Well, it's good to be together as we study First Peter. Would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come and help us now. Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see wondrous things in this book? And you would unite our hearts to fear your name. And that you would cause us to be satisfied in Christ alone. Help us to know who we are and how to live so that we would be fruitful in this world for you and for your glory. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want to talk about this morning is something that is one of the most difficult things for Christians. And without this thing, we will be fruitful, fruitless, unfruitful, and ineffective in the world. What is this thing? Well, it's this. To suffer wrongdoing for our faith and not retaliate. For Christians to be mocked or judged wrongly or laughed at or whispered about or be the butt of the jokes and not lash out, not retaliate, that's extremely difficult. And the reason I know that is because even when we're just slighted in the least, we're all bent out of shape. If someone just cuts you off on the freeway, you're upset. Someone takes your seat in your favorite pew. This is my spot. I've been sitting here for 30, 40 years. How dare you? Don't you know who I am? We jest, but yet we get bent out of shape when we don't get our way. When people misunderstand what we say. When we're misinterpreted. Much less when we're actively, intentionally slandered and libeled and reviled. It's hard not to retaliate. And we live in a country where we have laws and protections and legal recourse when, this, when things like this happen. When someone libels us, we can take them to court. We also have this truth baked into our country. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the way that our culture interprets this is don't tread on me. If you stand in the way between me and my happiness, I'm going to make you stop. I'm going to make you pay. And Peter, throughout the book so far, has been challenging Christians, challenging his readers to remember who they are, And not to retaliate. He says, remember that you've been born again to a living hope. That you have an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you. Undefiled, unfading, and imperishable. Remember who you are. And then now live in light of that. Be holy, for I am holy. Remember that you're a royal priesthood. A holy people for God's own possession. That you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous into his marvelous light so that you might live differently in this world. So Peter has been challenging his readers throughout the book to do that. And the reason he's doing that is because it would have been a very real temptation for Peter and for us in today's world to just either lash out and retaliate or to modify, accommodate, compromise our beliefs. Maybe if we just shift just a little bit, ever so slightly, the world will then welcome us back. 
Maybe if we just take away this one aspect that they get all bent out of shape about, that we'll be welcomed back. And yet Peter is calling for something radically different. He's calling for a countercultural response to the world. That when you're under pressure, when you're ridiculed, when you're reviled, when you're mocked, what should we do? We should continue to live a godly life. Don't retaliate. Don't fight fire with fire. But instead, hold on to the distinctiveness of your faith. Hold on to the very things that are bringing about your suffering, your reviling. Hold on to the things that Jesus has called us to. And Peter's in good company. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are hard words from our Savior. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And so Peter's aim in our passage, is to exhort us to continue to live godly lives, but not just any godly life, not just morality for the sake of morality, but live godly lives that shine forth with the distinctiveness of Christ, that show forth who we are in Jesus. And so the question we're wrestling with this morning is do we exhibit these distinctive qualities of Christians? who are holding fast to Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. And this passage will give us those three distinctives. And we'll see them in verses 8 to 12, 13 to 17, and then 18 to 22. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary... Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." The first distinctive quality of Christians is this, a countercultural love for even our enemies, a countercultural love for even those who hate us. If you look at verse 8, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind and brotherly love. And what he's been doing, he's been continuing the flow of thought previously. Be subject to authorities and be subject to your master, and wives be subject to your husbands. And now he says, all of you within the body of Christ, we're to love each other. But then in verse 9, he shifts and he says, but we're actually even to love those who revile us. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called. The word bless there is very literally to ask for favor from God on those who actually want to do us harm. That's what it means to bless. And he says, this is what you've been called to. That's what being a Christian is. We are to bless when we're reviled. And that's an impossibility without the Holy Spirit. 
And that's why Peter has no problem calling Christians to this very thing. And then he gives us some motivation in verses 10 to 12. He says, that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, so what's that blessing that we get? Well, he says in verses 10 and 11, essentially, if you live in a good way, good things will happen to you. If you desire to love life and see good days, keep your tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. If you don't lie and you don't speak deceit, you won't get caught in a lie. And yet, in verse 12, he then says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. Instead, he's saying, Don't revile, but bless those who hate you, because God's favor is on you. And this is a very real struggle for Peter's audience. When we're in the midst of suffering, when things are not going right for you, when things aren't going your way, you think, oh, is God judging me? Have I made a mistake? Is everything lined up? Am I suffering punishment? And what he's saying is, no, God's favor's on you. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, even in the midst of being reviled and evil getting done against you. Matthew 10, 25 says this, If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And what he's saying there, if Jesus was scorned and ridiculed and maligned, you shouldn't expect much better. And this is hard for us as North American Christians. But then he gives us the second half. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What he's saying there is that God will vindicate. God will call all people to be judged, to be accounted for. All sins will be paid for, either at the cross of Christ or on the judgment day. And so God will vindicate. Miroslav Volf, a Christian philosopher who was present during the ethnic cleansings in Croatia in the 1990s, writes this, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. And what he's getting at is for us not to revile or repay or to retaliate. We have to have an understanding of divine vengeance, that God will call people to account. God will judge. Just about a month ago, on June 17th, a young man, 21 years old, by the name of Dylan Roof, walked into a church, and he sat with about 10 people for a Wednesday Bible study. And after an hour of studying the Bible with them, he stood up and he began firing, and he killed eight of them at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. You probably saw this in the news. And at the courtroom bond hearing just three days later, this is what one of the daughter, this is what the daughter of one of the 70-year-old ladies who was killed said to him. You took something very precious away from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. And may God have mercy on your soul. Another relative of another victim that was killed said this, I forgive you. My family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Do that and you'll be better off than you are right now. And this young man had not repented. It was not in tears. What would possess these people to offer forgiveness 
and to even seek mercy for this man. It's because they know that there is a judge who is in heaven who will call all people to account. And that if he repents now, even those sins, even those heinous crimes could be covered at the cross. And so, do we exhibit this type of countercultural love for our enemies, for those who hate us, for those who mock you? Maybe it's not reviling that you get, but you just get left out of certain invitations, or you get passed over for a promotion, or people whisper about you, or people laugh at your beliefs. Do we pray for them to be blessed by God and that they would come to know him? That is one of the distinctive qualities of being a Christian. So do we as Christians live a godly life, even in the midst of suffering, by exhibiting a countercultural love? Now look with me at verses 13 to 17, our second point. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." And so the second distinctive quality that he gives us here is fearless proclamation of the gospel, speaking of our faith fearlessly, boldly. So he begins in verse 13 with a rhetorical question. Who's there to harm you if you're doing good, if you're zealous to do good? And the answer is no one. But then he concedes this point, and he says, but even if you are suffering for doing good, you're blessed. God's favor's on you. Suffering for the Christian is not punishment. You're identifying with Christ. And then he says in verse 14, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Well, how can we not have any fear? Well, the next verse tells us, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. That's very literally, sanctify the Lord in your heart. Set him apart, revere him. And so what he's saying there is, fear God more than you fear anything else. When you have a right and healthy understanding of who God is, how big he is, and you revere him, all other earthly fears will fade away. You can be fearless. Jesus says so much in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so Peter is saying, be fearless, but be ready Be ready to make a defense to anyone who's asked you for the reason for the hope that's in you. And how are you to do that? With gentleness and respect. So that even when they slander you, not if they slander you, but when they slander you, that on that day, they'll be put to shame. And so, there are a couple implications here. People are asking and that we have an answer Are unbelievers, are people who don't know Jesus, able to see the hope that resides in us, and are they asking? Do people see you and I facing the trials of this world with hope in Christ? This is actually why I think it's a great idea to have unbelievers, people who are on the process, in that journey, in our small groups. Because it's in our small groups that we're dealing with 
the difficulties of life, where we're sharing prayer requests of wayward children and health struggles and anxiety and depression. And it's in that context that we're cleaving to Christ, that others are speaking the words of the gospel to us. And it's when unbelievers begin to see that, they say, whoa, you guys are weird, but that I want that. I want what you have. That's been my experience. When I've had unbelievers in my small group, they say, this is weird, but this is really neat. You guys really help each other, and you guys seem to not get all bent out of shape about some of the things that are going on. So are people asking? So very practically for us, when was the last time someone asked you about your faith? When was the last time someone said, I've been watching you, and you're different? Why is that? When was the last time someone said to you, what makes you tick? If this isn't taking place, we need to be challenged and chastised by this passage. Here are two diagnostic questions. First, are you engaged in friendships and conversations and relationships with unbelievers? For us, in a place like this, it's too easy to avoid people who don't think like us. So are we engaged in relationships with people who don't know Jesus so they can see our hope? And the second is if you're actually engaged in those relationships, do people see any difference in your life? Or are you just the same as them? Chicago's Mayor Rahm Emanuel said these words, You never let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that is that it's an opportunity to do things you think you could not do before. I think that's great for us as Christians. We don't let cultural crises or crises in the lives of our neighbors and friends go to waste, but it's an opportunity for us to speak the words of hope in a way that we couldn't have before. When we see the things in the news, it provides an opportunity for us to say, that doesn't seem right. I wonder if there's more to life than this. It's an opportunity for us to speak words of hope. There's a number of just lightning rod issues in our culture today that if you brought them up at the dinner party, you would just ruin the dinner party. Uh, half a dozen, a dozen of these issues. And what do we have to say about them? Do we have answers? Do we have a defense for our hope? Do we have winsome, gracious answers with gentleness and respect about these issues? Or do we just say we disagree with them? Or do we just have Sunday school answers? While they're true, they're unintelligible for the culture that Jesus says so, The Bible tells me so, and Jesus loves me. Well, that's true, but what about the really hard and pressing issues in our day? Will we just respond in disapproval, or will we actually have an answer to say, well, I don't know exactly what to do about that, but that doesn't seem right. And I think our hope shouldn't be in people trying to find their own self-fulfillment in the world, but that we're actually made in the image of a holy God, and that he's actually given us a purpose. How do we begin to have those conversations to make a defense for the hope that we have? How do we make the gospel intelligible to those around us so that when they come in, do they see a dead and dying faith that we're just traditional, that we're just backwards, that we're on the wrong side of history, or do they see a defense for our faith that's articulated well, that they can understand, 
that when someone walks into here, do they see just that they should dress a certain way and sing four-part harmonies? Or do they see that we have a risen and resurrected Savior, that Jesus Christ is at the center of our faith, and that's what they should see? Is that our hope? Do we make the hope of the gospel intelligible to the lost? I think that's the challenge here. Be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And so the question is, do you, can you make an articulate, a coherent articulation of your faith? Can you explain the essentials of your faith? Do you have a winsome response to some of the issues of the day? Are you ready to answer those questions? And is anyone asking you? So do we as Christians live a godly life, even in the midst of suffering, by exhibiting a countercultural love and speak of our faith boldly, fearless proclamation? Now our third point. Look with me at verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the fun part. The third distinctive quality, trait of Christians is this, that we are to rest in our victorious and suffering Savior. Look with me at verse 18. But Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is one of the most beautiful encapsulations of the Christian message, of the gospel. That God, Christ, suffered once for all for sins. All those who are in Christ will never suffer for their sins. They've been taken at the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous. If we're being true to ourselves and if we look at the state of our lives we would say that we don't live up to the own standards that even we've put forth for others. And we need someone who can live a perfect life on our behalf. And that's what Jesus is, the righteous for the unrighteous. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, or you're not quite sure where you are, this is the word for you, that you can have this, that Christ can bring you to God because he can suffer for your sins as the perfect God-man, the righteous for the unrighteous. And that's what we want you to leave with this morning. So we have a suffering Savior. And yet look with me at verse 22. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All rival powers, all demonic powers have been subjected to Jesus Christ. We have a victorious Savior. He rules and he reigns and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So we have a suffering Savior and we have a victorious Savior. And so... 
that should give us great hope and confidence that when we're being attacked and reviled, mocked, the butt of the jokes, that we cannot respond in anger, but that we actually hold on to who Jesus is and what he has done for us and the life that he gives us now. Now look with me at verses 19 to 22. This is where it gets all sorts of confusing. Proclaim to the spirits in prison, something about Noah, and then baptism, all rolled together. The main difficulty lies in verse 19, where it says, Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, what did he say? Who are the spirits, and where is this prison? And I'll give us the three options and make a case for why I think the last option is most likely. The first option is this, that Christ descended into hell between his uh, death and resurrection to give a second offer of salvation to those who died in the days of Noah in the flood. And that's most likely not what it is because that wouldn't cohere with what Peter's been saying is that we need to persevere. And that's what actually takes hold of eternal life. And there is no second offer of salvation. Jesus in Luke 16 himself tells a story of a rich man and a poor man. And they're divided about, uh, between this chasm and they cannot cross. And so even in our own worship folder, when we talk about Jesus descended into hell, we have this little asterisk, and we say this refers to the realm of the dead, not the place of punishment. And so, that's the first option. The second option is that the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus, before he was manifested on earth, went through the power of the Holy Spirit to Noah, through Noah, and preached to Noah's contemporaries. This is another option. And then the third option, which I think is the best way to understand it, is that Jesus Christ post-death and resurrection, declares his victory to demonic powers who were disobedient during the days of Noah. And the reason for this is that in verse 19, where it says he went and proclaimed, that most likely seems like this is coming after his death and resurrection rather than being the pre-incarnate Christ. And then spirits never refers to, or most likely doesn't refer to, humans after death, but rather to angelic beings. And then in prison, which is never used to refer to Christians, a place for Christians after their death, but it is referred to a place for Satan in Revelation 20, verse 7. And then Jude 6 says this, which is somewhat connected. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. So Jesus, after his death and resurrection, is proclaiming his victory to these demonic powers. Crystal clear, right? And what this is saying is, the main point still stands, though, however you understand it, which is that for Peter's audience, in those days, they were a small minority with the rest of the world gathered against them. And yet for Noah and his band of eight, they were a small minority with the entire world against them. And yet they were the ones who were safely brought through in the ark through the judgment waters. And so Peter's saying, even if you're a small minority, don't worry. You're safe. God will bring you through. And then when he connects it to baptism, he's saying, now you have gone through the judgment waters as well. Not of the flood, but of baptism. But Jesus has gone through those waters first. And he died and he rose again. And when we're baptized, it signifies that. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when you were baptized, if you've been baptized, you went through 
death, and resurrection. And you were raised again with him. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead, we share in that victory. And we signify that by baptism. And so the main point still stands. Jesus Christ overcomes sin and death and all rival powers, all authorities, all angels as the crucified and risen Lord and Savior. And so is your hope in the victorious and suffering Savior this morning. This is what it means to be a Christian. When the world looks at us and says, how can you possibly believe Jesus is the only way? How can you possibly take the Bible seriously? Do you really want to end up on the wrong side of history? How can you possibly be so old-fashioned and outdated and backwards? Do we find our hope and our confidence in the fact that we have a Savior who has conquered every rival power and has suffered for our sins, and so he will bring us safely through? And so do we as Christians live a godly life by exhibiting countercultural love by proclaiming the gospel boldly and without fear, and resting in the reality that we have a victorious and suffering Savior. And so Peter is calling us to this amazingly high calling. I know this isn't easy. That when the world may be against us, when we're reviled and mocked, and even low-level persecution where people just pass you up for promotions and you're just whispered about in the halls and your friends at school make fun of you and you want to not bow your head to pray over your meal in public or you're afraid to bring your Bible to school. Even that, when the world is against us, do we continue to live in such a way that brings God glory? Do we shine forth with the glory of Christ? Are we the people who not only don't respond in retaliation and try to seek our own retribution, but we are actually the people who continue to shine forth with the light of Christ in good deeds and love, even blessing those who hate us so that Jesus would be honored, that we actually give a comprehend, uh, understandable defense of our faith to those who are asking, that we're actually living in such a way that people are saying, what makes you different? Are we the people who live in such a way that bring God glory? That we're to love and bless, that we're to share our hope and to rest in the reality that we have Jesus Christ who has suffered for our sins and is now victorious, reigning at the right hand of the throne of God and has put all other powers, all other people and agendas and anything else in the world under his feet. We can spend our time lamenting how things are going, or we can shine forth with the glow of the glory of Christ. This is your purpose. This is why you're still here. God can easily take you up. At the moment of your conversion, you could have disappeared, and God could have taken you up. But our purpose is to be here and now, to shine as lights in the world, to point to our Savior. We're to be salt to preserve the world, were to sing forth his praises so that people would see how glorious he is. Like we looked at in chapter 2, we're to proclaim his excellencies, who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so, the only way we can do that 
is by embracing who we are and what Christ has done for us and live out that hard and glorious calling that we have. Are we ready to do that, College Church? Are we ready that in the face of the world that we continue to live godly lives and make much of Jesus and we show all people that Jesus Christ is worth it and he's worthy? Join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do this work in our hearts by the power of your Spirit. You know where each one of us is hurting or facing some of these trials, and we pray that you would give us great boldness, great hope in Christ to love even those who hate us so that Jesus Christ could be seen and so that those who don't know you might see the gospel of hope lived out in our lives so that many more would be ushered into your kingdom in this place and around the world. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.